young single attorney returns home at 1 a.m. to her secure Houston apartment after a fun night out with friends. She locks the door, completes her bedtime routine, and curls up for a good night's sleep. But it wasn't the alarm that would wake her. How did her safe haven become a bloodbath by dawn? This is the case of Jennifer Morey. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Episode 9 of Crime Cave. I'm Christy, and today's episode is kind of a stark reminder that crime can happen absolutely anywhere. This is the case of Jennifer Morey. In the spring of 1995, 26-year-old Jennifer Morey was a new attorney embarking on the start of her law career. Born in November 1969, Jennifer excelled in school, earning her bachelor's in both political science and history from Duke University in Durham, North Carolina in 1991. She would then go on to law school and graduate from Tulane University in New Orleans in 1994. Her new career eventually led her to a new city, Houston. In preparation for her move, Jennifer spent a weekend checking out apartment complexes. She wanted something as safe and secure as possible. After an extensive search, Jennifer finally chose the Bayou Park Apartments on Memorial Avenue. It was a small but exquisite apartment with a beautiful open balcony facing the street. It was close to downtown, had on-duty security guards at all times, and also had an eight-foot fence around the perimeter of the property. Knowing the dangers and easy accessibility of a garden apartment, Jennifer chose a unit on the second floor. On the evening of Saturday, April 15, 1995, a friend had called to invite her to the alehouse, a nearby pub. Jennifer agreed, and while they were there, they ran into a few other friends. The group enjoyed themselves throughout the evening, and by 1 a.m., one of the male friends had dropped Jennifer off back at her apartment. Exhausted after the evening out, Jennifer secured the deadbolt on her door, washed her face, brushed her teeth, and after a few moments, was safe and sound in her bed. In the middle of a deep sleep, Jennifer was suddenly out of breath and couldn't move her body. In a haze, she slowly came to the horrifying realization that a man was on top of her, holding her down and grabbing at her underwear, trying to yank them off. Her mind had told her this had to be a dream, but then she heard blood-curdling screams and realized they were coming from her own mouth. Jennifer instantly went into fight mode, kicking, squirming, moving, and screaming. She reached her hands up and felt a knife at her throat. Then she suddenly felt an intense blow to her right eye and felt an explosion of blood like a hot waterfall pouring out. She thought he had cut her eye out, but actually her face had been slashed open. In the darkness, the knife was flailing everywhere. He then said something that baffled her. Jennifer, shut the hell up. This man knew who she was. In her panic, Jennifer's brain tried to rattle through whose voice that was. She had a fleeting hope that if he knew her, maybe, just maybe, she could convince him to stop. Instead, 
he slit her throat. He then said, Don't look at me, bitch. And as much as her brain and her law school education told her she needed to remember as much as possible so that she could identify him, she was not going to do anything to aggravate the situation. He then dragged her across the room and told her to get into the bathroom while he returned to the bedroom to get the knife. In that moment, Jennifer slammed the door shut, but there was no lock on the door. With her neck bleeding profusely, she slid down with her back to the door and braced her feet against the tub. She pushed and held as long as she could to keep him out. After several agonizing minutes, it suddenly got eerily quiet. Jennifer could hear him moving throughout her apartment, grabbing items, moving things. Then she heard the distinct sound of his pants zipping up. Jennifer waited in there, scared to come out, but her throat was gushing blood. She was able to reach the toilet paper roll and put it against the gaping wound. Time seemed to stand still as she grappled with whether or not to open the door. Was he waiting quietly on the other side to finish her off? But if she stayed in there cowering in the bathroom, she was going to bleed to death. Terrified, Jennifer made the decision to open the door, but she realized she had damaged the door when she jammed it shut, and now her hands were too slick with blood to turn the knob. Panicking, Jennifer finally managed to get the door open and slowly walked out, not knowing if the man was still in her apartment. She tried to turn on the lights, but quickly realized both the power lines and landline had been cut. Although cell phones were a rarity in 1995, Jennifer's employer had issued her a phone, and she immediately called 911. During the call, Jennifer heard a pounding on her door and told her dispatcher that help had arrived. However, according to his screen, Houston Fire and Ambulance were still en route. Jennifer told her dispatcher she didn't have her contacts in and was further blinded by the blood in her eyes, so she couldn't confirm who was outside. The voice was very insistent that she open the door, promising her help. Jennifer was hysterical. The knife had nicked her jugular vein, and she had two deep stab wounds through her arm. But her dispatcher calmly told her, Jennifer, if you don't know who this is on the other side, do not open the door. Time moved very slowly for her while she waited, but finally she heard lots of voices outside her door, and Richard, her dispatcher, confirmed that Houston Fire and Police were there, and it was okay to leave. She collapsed as soon as she opened the door, and medics immediately transported her to the hospital. Meanwhile, police began going over the bloody crime scene, and the following items were discovered. A man's belt, a bloody knife, a glove, and a pair of men's underwear. 
En route to the hospital, Jennifer overheard medical personnel say that they also had a security guard injured as well. She began crying, feeling awful that someone else had also been hurt. The security guard had stated that he collided with the assailant after he jumped from the balcony of Jennifer's apartment and had a fierce fight with him as he unsuccessfully tried to catch up. During examination of his physical injuries, the security guard was asked to remove his clothing. His white socks were covered in blood. He was missing his belt, and he had no underwear on. He also couldn't explain why he didn't have his Pinkerton security hat. But that was found at the crime scene. Jennifer's attacker was 26-year-old Brian Wayne Gibson one of the on-duty security guards employed by her own apartment complex. It should be noted that during his three years of employment at Pinkerton, he had racked up numerous complaints from female clients for harassment. However, the company did not hold him accountable, only transferring him to different locations until eventually being assigned to work nights at the apartment complex where Jennifer Morey lived. Pinkerton Security Company had previously announced that it would conduct detailed background checks on every employed security guard to ensure the absolute safety of customers. However, they failed to deliver on that promise. Jennifer underwent surgery and was able to make a full physical recovery. She returned to her apartment only to retrieve her belongings and move out. Although the emotional toll was immense... Jennifer would later say, a little series of miracles prevented her death. The blade of the knife seemed to have hit the gold chain on her chest, which was a high school graduation gift from her mother, and it was the small gold block that kept the blade from piercing her throat. In fact, the knife was only a few millimeters short of severing Jennifer's jugular vein, and also perfectly avoided all of her facial muscles and nerves. She also had a guardian angel in the form of a 911 dispatcher named Richard Everett. His intuition told him that something didn't sit right with him about the supposed Good Samaritan on the other side of Jennifer's door. She's convinced that if she had let him in, he would have finished the job. She would later say, Having instinct, intuition, and a big heart, Richard saved my life. And for that... He will always be one of the most important people that's ever impacted my life. Jennifer and Richard are still good friends today, and he was a guest of honor at her wedding. Jennifer went on to build her own law practice in Fort Worth, Texas, specializing in arbitration and mediation. In September of 1998, Jennifer sued Pinkerton Security and was awarded an undisclosed amount of money. She is also a speaker author, and mom of two children. Brian Wayne Gibson served 20 years in prison. Hey everybody, it's Ray the Roadie. And this is Hollywood Mike with the Rock and Roll Chicago Podcast coming to you from the Illinois Rock and Roll Museum on Route 66 in Joliet, Illinois. Where once a week we are interviewing local musicians and singer-songwriters and the podcast itself covers a wide range of topics, including... 
but not limited to the history of rock and roll in Chicago, the current state of the scene, and the challenges and opportunities facing musicians today. So join us every Tuesday for a new exciting episode of the Rock and Roll Chicago podcast. Thanks for joining me. This episode of Crime Cave has been brought to you by Fortress Defense Consultants, providing security consulting for educational institutions, corporate facilities, and houses of worship, as well as pepper spray, situational awareness, and defensive firearms training for police and private citizens. Find Fortress on the web at FortressDefense.com. Contact Fortress directly at 708-522-8060 or email them at info at FortressDefense.com. Avoid being the subject of a future episode of Crime Cave. Train with Fortress today. Until next time.